Today's episode is a really fun and riveting conversation with Sarah Murray. Sarah is the founder and CEO of Curie, a personal care brand. They make these beautiful natural deodorants that she founded while she was working in venture capital. And that's where she decided to start Curie. And we cover some crazy stories of resilience over the course of this conversation. So I'm really excited for you guys to tune in here. We talk about not only Sarah's story of getting onto Shark Tank and how it almost didn't happen, founder resilience in general and just how important it is. I also share some of my own personal stories of resilience that I haven't shared anywhere before. We talk about lifestyle businesses versus VC-backed companies, dealing with rejection as a founder, going all in, getting over the fear of being cringe. And we also at the end have a little bit of a cathartic venting session about the media double standard when it comes to female founders. So it's a far-ranging conversation. And it's really also one that's just raw and real and dare I say it vulnerable. So I really appreciate just how candid and transparent Sarah was. And I personally feel like this conversation gets into a lot of the gritty emotional stuff involved in being a founder that is really important to talk about because it just makes us feel less alone. So I'm grateful to Sarah for sharing her story. I hope you guys like it too. And if you do, let me know, find me on Instagram, find me on Twitter, and just let me know what you liked about this conversation because I love hearing from you guys. But without further ado, let's get into the conversation with Sarah Murray. So we are here today with Sarah Murray of Curie. It is a personal care brand and it was founded several years ago after Sarah left Venture. And I'm just really excited to have her here because she is somebody that is willing to be transparent about the entrepreneurial journey. And I just feel like that is what we need more of. So Sarah, I'm really excited to have you on here today. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to be here. I told you I've been such a big fan of yours and your TikTok and your journey, and it's great to finally meet you. Likewise. I'd love to start with the inspiration for the name Curie. What does it mean? Why did you choose this name? Yeah. So the brand is named after Marie Curie. So anyone that's not familiar with Marie Curie, famous physicist and chemist from the 1800s, she was the first woman to win the Nobel Prize and the only person to win the Nobel Prize in two different sciences. Mm -hmm. um, she was truly a trailblazer. This was like the 1800s when women weren't even going to college um, or getting an education. And she blazed her own trail and got her PhD and won the Nobel Prize and had this incredible career also had just an incredible family life as well. She had two daughters who ended up going off and winning the Nobel Prize on their own. So she clearly was an amazing mother, an amazing scientist. And I actually did a book report on her. I think it was like third or fourth grade. And she really just stuck with me. So when it came time to name my company, honestly, this was like the hardest decision that I had to make early on. It was so so hard. I don't know how familiar anyone is with trademark law, but the class three trademarks are the personal care industry and it's really hard to get a trademark. So I tried so many different names. I landed on Curie because I figured let's name the brand after um, someone who really represents who I'm building this company for, for those trailblazers, those women who are out there building careers, building companies, building lives and need products that can keep up. And so I felt like Marie Curie really represented that customer I was building my brand for. And lucky enough, the trademark was available. And here we are. What made you choose this specific product category? It was a long journey to get here. I, I started my career actually as a CPA. 
Um, so I worked at PricewaterhouseCoopers auditing, which was riveting, but you know, a good foot in the door into the business world gave me really, really good, obviously financial and accounting basics that I still use today. Um, went on to work in venture capital for a couple of years. I was an associate, so I was sourcing deals, doing diligence on deals. And that was really when the entrepreneurship bug hit me. I thought that I wanted to be a VC. And as you know, my career progressed, I worked in venture for four years. I was meeting with hundreds of entrepreneurs and was kind of like, I would rather be on that side of the table. This seems more fun. Like I wanted to build something. And part of what wasn't so thrilling about venture to me was like, your job is to make investments and then like move on to the next one, find the next big thing. And I always kept trying to hang on and wanting to keep going and keep building with these companies and amazing entrepreneurs we were investing in. And so it kind of clicked at some point where I knew, you know, at the time I was in my 20s, I knew it was now or never. Like if I want to start something, if I feel like I could do this, like now is the time to just go for it. And so I kept my eyes and ears open for about a year and a half, just had a little notebook where I'd write down different ideas, realized I'm not a tech person. I'm not, you know, a developer. I wanted something that I could really create on my own and do it preferably bootstrapped. That's a whole other story. But I really wanted to bootstrap despite having this career in venture capital. And I wanted something that I was the end customer. And so I just kept my eyes peeled for opportunities, products that I wished existed that didn't or products that I could improve upon and make them better. And deodorant was one of them. At the time, I was a marathon runner. I was super active, always on the go, leaving at 8 a.m. in the morning and sometimes not coming home till 10 at night because I had a dinner or a work event. And my deodorant never worked throughout the day for me. It was always an issue. I was always blotting my underarms in the bathroom with paper towels or like using the air conditioner in the car to like dry off my sweaty armpits. It was always an issue. And I tried switching to an aluminum free deodorant and it was an absolute disaster. And that was the aha moment for me where I was like, this is a product that I need. I know I can make this better if I find the right people to help me. And I knew from you know, talking to friends, this was a problem for other people as well. So it kind of checked off all those boxes. And then from a business perspective, it's also, you know, a replenishable product, which is great. It's not super heavy to ship. It really just ticked all the boxes. And that's what really got me excited about the idea. So coming from the venture side, I'm really curious about this decision to forego raising capital. A few years ago, it was more the norm for consumer brands to go out and raise capital. And that has not necessarily worked out for a lot of brands. And now I think people are being a little bit more mindful about, is this the right fit? So I appreciate anybody who's more thoughtful about that, especially somebody who presumably has a little bit more familiarity and access to potentially raising capital. So I want to understand sort of what went into that decision. Why did you decide not to raise? Yeah, it was definitely a conscious decision before I even started the business that I wanted to start a business that I could bootstrap. And there were several reasons. One, like you mentioned, just 
consumer brands specifically, especially ones like mine where, you know, it's a lower price point item. I knew I could start it with a really low capital investment. Of course, if I went and started the next Tesla, I would have to raise money. Or, you know, if I started the next Facebook, I would have to raise money. There's certain business models that venture was made for. And I just felt like consumer wasn't one of them. And when I was working in venture capital, a lot of times I would have this conversation with entrepreneurs. They would come into our office and they would pitch. I'd always ask, what are you using this money for? Like, why do you need $2 million or $3 million or whatever? And a lot of the times my response to whatever their answer was, is like, why don't you just go out and start? And then Prove there's a business there. Prove that you have product market fit and you can acquire customers and then raise money. Like you would be in such a better position in terms of leverage when it's already working and you just need cash to fuel the fire versus coming with a pitch deck and, you know, an idea and raising off of that. And so I I would give this advice to entrepreneurs a lot. Just go out and start. If you can, if you don't have major upfront capital investments, go out and start. And so I kind of took my own advice. I found an amazing chemist that we partnered with early on. It was a really low upfront cost for the product development. I think I paid like $500 for the product development. And then our first production run, I I negotiated the minimum quantity down to 2,000 units. So my upfront investment, when you add in the cost of packaging and all of that trademark, ended up being about $12,000. And so I figured let's go out and sell 2000 units. And if I can go sell 2000 units with zero marketing spends, like I know I've got a business or at least I, the idea has legs and that's exactly what I did. And, and eventually went on and I did raise money from some angel investors. We've never raised a official institutional round. And I don't think we ever will, because I do think there's been a shift where the venture industry has realized like the returns in consumer can be amazing. You know, look at Hero. I know you, you interviewed Jew. She built an incredible venture scale brand, but those are really few and far between. And when I started Curie, I was really just, I set my goals for myself. And the goals that I set for myself were more of a lifestyle brand is what a lot of VCs call it. I was happy and I still would be happy to build a $50 million brand. And that is not the venture model. Uh, Most venture funds are looking for those home run billion dollar brands. And that wasn't really what I was aspiring to build. So that was really what led to my decision-making around how to fund the business and how I've still kind of been approaching fundraising. I don't think venture is a fit for everyone and it's okay to have like different ambitions, I think. Yeah, I think that point is sometimes underappreciated in the tech world. Like you said, shooting for, let's say, a $50 million outcome, that is life-changing if you own a big chunk of the company. That is so respectable. That takes basically just as much work, but just in a different way on a different path. And I don't think that there's enough appreciation of that because I almost feel like the term lifestyle business has a certain connotation in like the tech world. And it's very it's, negative. In VC, yeah. that was like kind of a knock where you'd be like, it's right. more of a lifestyle business. Yeah. It's like a dismissive like, thing. Lifestyle businesses can be, like you said, life-changing money. I also think like now being on the other end, having run this business for three and a half years, 
I truly, truly believe that constraints early on breed creativity. Having the constraints that I have had since day one have forced me to be so creative, so diligent with every dollar that I spend, so diligent with, you know, customer acquisition. Like I can't spend on Facebook unprofitably. Like that's just not an option for me. So we've been super, super diligent and creative along the way. And I know that Ju has said the same thing about her early days at Hero. You look at those brands and I don't think they're going to be as common going forward, but you look at brands, you know, in the past, like the Outdoor Voices, of the world and Billy Razors like that raised money and they were just told to grow, 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 grow. Top line, all costs, doesn't matter how much you're burning because someone will scoop you up. And that did happen for some of them. But I think that is starting to dry up, definitely just starting to dry up. And I think will continue to be. And now a lot of M&A that's happening in this in the CPG space is profitable. It's EBITDA multiples. And so I think people are starting to realize that and kind of shift, shift that thinking away from super unprofitable growth at all costs mentality to like a more diligent, disciplined focus on profitability. Totally. And I also think recently amidst uh, talks of recession, a lot of people like to talk about how, oh, like the big tech companies came out of recessions. And I do think that part of it was because when you're in a tougher environment, it's almost like in the wilderness, right? Like if you're an organism and you're exposed to a harsher climate, you have to just become tougher and you hone your ability to survive. It's a weird analogy, but I almost think of businesses as being similar where you have a thicker skin, you are more resilient and more sort of like shockproof. And I think that serves you even after the recession, right? You just have the right foundations. You have more discipline baked into the business and that's going to serve everyone. Yes, I absolutely agree with that. I I really do think that constraints are good for business and they force you to get creative. Yeah. Tell us about Shark Tank. I want (laughs) to fast forward to that because I'm just so curious. What was that like? How did you land that opportunity and how did you prepare? Just walk us through that. Yeah. I mean, there's been a few big inflection points for me and for the business. If you look at our growth on a graph, it's definitely not linear. There's been highs and lows, and there's been a few inflection points where it's been like, do, 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 boom, and then to the next level. That's been the story of Curie. The first was QVC. We got on QVC in January of 2021. I aired Saturday morning, sold out, and boom, overnight became a multi-million dollar channel for us. That was one of our first big inflection points. And then the second was Shark Tank. So I aired on Shark Tank, what was it? Season 13. So I aired in uh, March of 2022. That was a crazy story. This is a whole other podcast just about, you know, persevering through the nose. I don't want to waste our time telling you the whole story. I'll give you the quick TLDR. I got a no from Shark Tank first. Like I applied a year prior, got a no. They told me, encouraged me to apply again. So I did, applied again, and I ended up getting on the show. I worked my butt off. Like preparing for Shark Tank was a part-time job for me. I worked so hard, probably spent 80 hours. Wait, how do you prepare for like what went into the preparation? So as an entrepreneur on Shark Tank, you have to design your own set. You have to buy everything for your set. So that was one thing, like designing the set, getting all the stuff for it. That's one piece. And then creating your pitch, preparing for the Q&A, you know, having an answer to every possible question. I watched 
hours of Shark Tank. I worked on my pitch with the producers for weeks and put a lot into the preparation. I figured if I have this opportunity, like I'm going to make the most of it. And I, I trained like I was going to the Olympics, like ready to go. And the night before I was supposed to film, I got a call from the producers that I had been canceled from the schedule. It was literally eight o'clock on Sunday night. I was supposed to be there at 6 a.m. on Monday. They said, sorry, Sarah, there were some storms on the East Coast. Flights got messed up. We had to mix the schedule up and we aren't going to be able to film with you anymore. So obviously I was absolutely devastated. I had my clothes laid out. I had gotten a facial, got my nails done. I was so, so devastated and went through, you know, a really rough summer of 2021, just feeling like I wanted to throw in the towel. Talk about one of those moments where I thought it was over. I was like ready to quit. Honestly, it was such a devastation. And at the time, I just didn't really know what we were going to do. And so, you know, we ended up having some really great sales on QVC that summer. And I, by the end of the summer, I had my energy back. I was excited about what 2022 was going to hold for us. And then I got a call while I was on a hike in LA from the producer in September, months later, being like, hi, Sarah, our last filming date is today for the season. And we have some time, like some extra time at the end of the day. Can you be here in two hours? You've got to be kidding me. (laughs) What? That's insane. I'm not kidding. And so my husband, like my fiance at the time was like, I already Google mapped it. We can be home in 40 minutes. I'll go run to the store and get, cause I didn't have anything for my set. So he's like, I'll go get like all the fresh fruits and flowers for your set. I'll grab you a cold brew. I'll pick you up and I can get you there by four. And we're like, great, we're doing it. And so I practiced my pitch and the car ride home. Like I didn't even shower. I just dry shampoo, like did my makeup in the passenger seat, got dropped off at the lot and literally was whisked onto the set of Shark Tank like that. It was so crazy. Um, So that was my story of just like Shark Tank almost didn't happen. And the way that it happened was actually probably the best thing for me because my adrenaline was like overdrive. I was on cloud nine. I strutted out there into the Shark Tank like no one could mess with me. So much swagger. And I just really think that if it had happened any other way, I probably wouldn't have done as well. I just felt amazing and I killed it. And that situation was just the perfect, perfect situation for me and my personality. I kind of needed that push and that pressure. That's so stressful to even hear about that whole story. Oh my gosh. But isn't it amazing how life sometimes works like that? It's like total detour. You're like, this is terrible. And then it ends up being the perfect thing, but you can never predict it was so funny. And later that night getting home and calling my my mom, she like didn't believe me. She thought I was joking because she's like, wait, what? You went on Shark Tank? Like what? How? Why, why didn't you tell me? I'm like, mom, they called me two hours like, before I went on. And um, yeah, so I got a deal with Mark Cuban and Barbara Corcoran. It was honestly one of the most like amazing days of my whole life. And I'll never forget it. And then we aired in March. And that was our second really big inflection point overnight. Within a course of a couple months, like, you know, the Shark Tank effect lasts. And we ended up 4Xing the business. So Curious, four times bigger than it was before Shark Tank and continuing to grow. And Shark Tank really has been the gift that keeps on giving. You know, it's not just that one night hit. It keeps going. It's been almost a year. And we're still acquiring over 30% of our customers from Shark Tank. I have chills. 
That's insane. Yeah, That's so really, wild. Really crazy story. What a very extreme example of the importance of not throwing in the towel, just like hanging on through those points where you're like, this is not worth it. Like, why am I even doing this? But yeah. sometimes when you hang on, like there's just an inflection point waiting on the other side of that. Yeah. I mean, I have the chills now too. Like just you saying that because that summer of 2021, Curie, we weren't we weren't doing bad, but we weren't meeting like my ambition level. We were growing, but we'd have a lot of like stutters and stops. And I know that anyone listening to this who's an early stage founder, especially in consumer, can relate to this. Until you are a big brand that has these like really predictable customer acquisition channels, you've gotten Facebook to work, or you have an amazing influencer program. A lot of early stage founders and consumer have those like stutters and stops. Oh my God, we're killing it. We're doing amazing. And then the next week you're like, where'd everyone go? So we definitely were still dealing with that. And at this point I was like two and a half years in and I was like, am I wasting my time? Should I, should I start something else? Like maybe this isn't the right thing. Maybe it's too competitive of a space. And it was like, oh, just the universe telling me don't stop. I got on Shark Tank and it's completely changed the business. You know, our, our Facebook ads are working now. You know, we have an amazing repeat customer rate. We still have tons of organic growth. We're profitable. It's like, all the things that I wanted then that we didn't have, we have now because of this big moment and like not giving up. I love that because in my own small way, I also attribute that resilience and not giving up to my inflection point with TikTok actually, which is kind of a funny thing because what happened is, and I don't think I've shared this before, but when I started on TikTok, I was running a business called Make Lane and it was a community of women D2C founders with an educational component. So we had courses and memberships and yada, yada. And I was doing that, but I had been doing that solo for a couple of years. It was bringing in some income, but not a lot. And it was a struggle. And I was also very burnt out. And I started posting on TikTok for fun and then started talking about business. It started to take off. I was starting to meet interesting creators and founders, but still it was early innings of that journey. And I remember there was a point, this was like December, January of, this was a year ago. Yeah, it was like literally a year ago when I was like, I am a 29-year-old woman posting TikTok videos in my bedroom, not able to figure out what to do with my business. Like all my peers are surpassing. I had a lot of like comparison oh and gosh. weird stuff. You know what I mean? Like so much of that. So real. That is so real. And then like, everyone's doing better than me. Like, I know exactly. The worst. People are buying houses. Like what is going on? I was like behind in like every metric that I was measuring myself by. And I was just like, wow, this is not working. There's something here with the TikTok because it's starting to take off and it's just flowing in a way that I don't think anything I've ever done before has work. It just is working. I was like, there's something here, but like, it's just content and it's just followers. Like I can't do anything with this. And I had this moment where I was like, should I just give up? And then what happened was I held on and I was like, you know what? I really feel like there's something here because I love building a community through this and I love how it feels to create content. So I'm going to keep going. And then a few weeks later, TikTok reaches out to me and they're like, we want to do a brand deal with you. And they offer me very generous terms and this big package of videos for one of their channels, not even my channel. And they were like, we just want you to do what you normally do, but talk about how TikTok is affecting different industries. And I was like, I can totally do that. And it was just, yeah. That is wild. That is your Shark Tank moment. That was my Shark Tank moment. And I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe somebody's willing to pay me to do this. This is insane. Because I didn't go into TikTok thinking like, I want to become a creator let alone I want to find brand deals. I was just putzing around. When that came in, it was nice to have like a brand deal, but really more it was, oh, there's something here. This is a sign that I need to keep going. It felt like 
you know, encouragement from the universe, if you will. And after that, the brand deals just kept coming in. Super similar where you're like at that point where you're about to throw in the towel yeah, and then boom, these opportunities present themselves and you're like, totally, this is my path. This is it. Yeah. And that was the first time I'm a very optimistic, like delusionally optimistic person. I think you need to be, to be vaguely in the entrepreneurial world. I know like missing a screw in my brain, but that was the first time that I was really like completely reassessing my life and being like, should I just go back to big tech? Like, what should I do? And I held out and very similar, like principle, I guess. So if anybody's listening and right now you're really on that precipice of giving up, like hang on just for a little bit longer. Hang on for a little bit longer and listen and keep your eyes open. Like, I mean, it's hard to say what would have happened to you or what would have happened to me if those things didn't happen. Maybe Shark Tank didn't call me on that day that I was hiking or if TikTok hadn't reached out to you, if giving up would have been the right decision or if maybe some other opportunity came about. But I do think those things happen. Like there have been so many times, you know, Shark Tank was just one of them that I've been truly on the verge of giving up. I mean, during COVID, there was a time when I was like, I don't even know if we can make payroll. Like we were very, very dangerous position because people stopped buying deodorant when lockdown started. And I was like, I'm going to have to shut down. This is it. You know, I had already made peace with it. I was ready to shut down. And then we launched our hand sanitizer in the middle of a pandemic when hand sanitizer was really hard to get. And it was a better hand sanitizer than what was out there. And we sold hundreds of thousands of bottles within like six months. And that saved the business. I think we sold like a million dollars worth of hand sanitizer in six months. And I was like, all right, we're back in business. Um, but those little moments, you just have to listen and, and be open to them and also be open to pivoting. Like sometimes that's what it is. Have you gotten better at dealing with the emotional roller coaster that is entrepreneurship? How do you deal with it? I have gotten a lot better. I, that is something I'm proud of and aware of. It was really hard in the early days. In the first year, I think one thing is like being bootstrapped and also being very involved as like a face of your brand. I didn't realize how much, because at the beginning I was very much the face of the brand because I didn't have any marketing budget. And so I was basically just on social media going on runs, sniffing my armpit. Oh, I still smell good. Like Sarah was Curie and Curie was Sarah. Every email that I sent to customers was signed by me. I was very, very much part of the brand and it was intertwined in like who I was, which meant it was intertwined in my self-worth. And I would take any negative feedback to heart because it felt like a personal insult. If the business wasn't doing well, we had a down month. It felt like very personal. Um, If a retailer said no to me, like it just felt like a personal rejection. And I think that's the biggest thing that I've changed and reframed is Curie is not Sarah. Sarah is not Curie. The business is its own entity and it's not personal. You know, when we get a no from a retailer, it does not hurt nearly as bad as it used to. It used to really derail me. And now it's just like, okay, they know best, you know, they know their business the best. It probably wouldn't have done well, you know? So it's probably a blessing. What's that phrase? Like rejection is God's protection. Like that is kind of how I see things now. It's like rejection. It's not personal. If a customer doesn't like the product, it's not personal. If the customer loves the product, it's also not personal. Like I just, I need to create that separation for my own mental health in creating that separation. I think part of it is bringing on employees has helped 
create that separation because now they're my employees and my team is building the brand. It's not so much me. By creating that separation, the ups and downs don't hurt me as much. Yeah, I was going to ask you what advice you would give to a founder who's maybe earlier and they are the face of the brand and they do take things very personally and it does feel very intertwined with their identity. Would you say that it's kind of just, you know, developing a thicker skin and bringing on a team that eventually lessens that blow or what advice would you give them? Yeah, I think first, like you said, I also have delusional optimism. Like I'm extraordinarily optimistic and also very positive and I'm I'm good at reframing things in a positive way because listen, like entrepreneurship is rejection. Like you are going to be rejected again and again, even if you are the hottest brand, like you are going to get rejected. If you're not, then you're not pushing hard enough and you're not going after enough big opportunities. I think rejection is part of this. You have to know that you are signing up for that from the get-go. And so I have learned, and I think it's just through seeing what's happened in all these circumstances where I've been like, oh no, like Sephora doesn't want our products on their shelves. Shark Tank canceled me from their schedule. Or, you know, even QVC said no at first. Like every great thing that's happened to the business has for the most part started with a no. Even Nordstrom, like every retail, every, it's always started with a no. So that's one thing is just like reframing most of these no's. I now see it as like a not right now. Because in most cases, it's not a no forever. Look at all these examples, QVC, Shark Tank. I got rejected the first time around. Then I got it rejected the night before. And then boom, I went on and had one of the most successful episodes of the season. So that's one way of protecting yourself is look at the no's and the rejections as like a not right now. And don't be too proud to follow up. Again, that's in all these cases, I followed up and I put my pride aside and just was like, all right. It's been a year. Anything changed? Anything different? So that's one thing. And then the second is you will learn as you go. There were so many times early on where I'm like, this is it. We're going to fail. You know, our packaging arrived damaged. I just lost $15,000. Like this is it. We're never going to recover from this. So I think you do kind of grow thicker skin to the scary moments where like the things that seem super scary and detrimental. And now it's like, I've dealt with everything. Like we yeah. can get through anything. Like there's nothing that scares me really anymore because I've just seen time and time again that like we've always figured it out. With COVID, deodorant sales drying up, we figured it out. We launched a hand sanitizer and we killed it. And I think that builds resilience and builds that optimism that we'll always, we'll always get through. Yeah. You're a solo founder, right? I am. Also don't recommend that. Tell us <laughs> more about that. Yeah. I mean, when I started, I think this would be a great, you know, a reason to go to therapy <laughs> is to figure out like, was I, I don't know if maybe I, I was just a little bit scared in the early days or if I was just being cautious or what, but like, I never really like created a business plan or I never really, I never really dreamed that Curie would become what it is today. I started Curie as a side hustle, totally bootstrapped. I still am not quite sure why, like I didn't go all in and I was really scared to go all in. I didn't actually go all in on Curie until almost a year and a half in. And so that's been a good thing and a bad thing, a bad thing in that like I kind of wasted a year and a half of time that I could have really gone all in and maybe grown bigger faster. But 
I think there's a lots of pros and cons to that of starting Curie as a side hustle. But I think because I started Curie as that side hustle where I wasn't quite sure what I wanted it to be and become, it wasn't the kind of thing where I was going to bring on a co-founder to, you know, quit their job and help me with this idea. I just started it on my own. And then my sister joined really early on and started doing all of our customer support. She still works with me. So she was kind of my, my earliest employee. And then we didn't really bring on our first like outside employee until last year. Well, yeah, I think being a solo founder complicates things because you're, you know, it's like being a single parent. You're just, it's yeah. all of it's on you. Yeah, it is. It's hard. It's, I'm not kidding when I say like, if I were to do it all over again, I would bring on a co-founder. Uh, I highly recommend like if you have someone that you can trust and bring on as a co-founder, I am so envious of people that have a co-founder that you really like jive with because that's like so magical to have someone to one, like share the burden with again, like you're not the only one laying up at night at three in the morning stressing. Um, you have someone to share that with that cares as much as you do. But two, like I love those magical, you know, co-founder relationships where each side has a really strong skill set that's really complementary. That's something I, I wish that I had. And, you know, if I ever do start another brand one day, I would I would definitely look for something like that. What else would you do differently besides that? If you had to do it all over again or if you had to start another brand like tomorrow? Great question. I, I definitely, like I said, bring on a co-founder. I am happy with how we started. I do wish I had gone all in a little bit sooner. I think there were really clear indicators that, you know, we were onto something. Our customers loved our products. I think there was a little bit of, again, something to work out in therapy, but maybe a little bit of just hesitation on my part of self-preservation or, you know, being a little scared to go all in and quit my job. It was felt like a big, scary leap to me. It was actually, I don't know if you've ever read the book Shoe Dog by mm-hmm. Phil Knight. That book was actually what motivated me to finally just quit my job and go all in. Um, he has some really great, there was a passage from that book about how he wasn't scared of failure. He was scared of like failing slow. And if mm-hmm. he was going to fail, he just wanted to fail fast. And then he could like, boom, wrap it up, take those learnings and start something new. And that was what really clicked with me where I was like, I'm not doing myself or Curie any, any favors by just working on nights and weekends. And kind of, I was at the time kind of using it as an excuse as to why we weren't growing faster. And that book like really kind of hit me and was like, you know, I need to go all in and not be, it was fear. It was definitely fear of just rejection and fear fear of failure and what people might think of me. And once I just made that decision and committed and went all in, that's when the business took off. We went from $150,000 in revenue in our first year. And then my first, my, the second year when I went all in, we did 750. So it was like huge growth, that decision to just commit to Curie and stop making excuses. Oh, I'm only part-time. Like that's why. And just going all in and committing fully is I think the only way. So that's another piece of advice. Like I know it's difficult and it's not, it's not possible for everybody to do that. But if you have an opportunity to either maybe take on some part-time consulting work so that you can so you can quit your job and focus on your business or you know raise some angel funding um so that you can go all in there's like there's really a mental shift that happens when you are fully committed and you're like 
burn the lifeboats. Like this is it. And I needed that. Yeah. And I kind of wish I had done it sooner if I were to, yeah. if I were to change anything. There's a book. Have you heard of Stephen Pressfield? No, I haven't. I don't think so. So he's one of my favorite authors. He writes books about like creativity and kind of going for the thing you want to go for. Mm-hmm. And one of his books is called Going Pro and it's about that. And it's so good because it really identifies and like very firmly gives you like tough love around just the bullshit excuses we sometimes give ourselves. Like I, with this podcast, like I was delaying for months and months and I was like, I don't have time. I don't have this. I had all these excuses. And then like a few weeks ago, one day I was like, if I don't do it now, I'm never going to do it. So I just started like banging out episode after episode. And he calls it going pro when we stop like bullshitting ourselves. And it's so, it's so powerful. It's not just about the productivity and output. It's just a whole change in mindset. And it just makes you like committed on another level that is so like motivating and empowering. Yes. Yeah. I love that. And another phrase that like I've, I remember reading early on was hard thing about hard things Mm -hmm. that there's a whole passage or a whole chapter about like, what lies are you telling yourself? There's so many lies that you tell yourself to keep you where you are, to keep you from making the right decisions. And sometimes you just have to sit down with yourself and be like, what lies am I telling myself? And like delusions, am I, am I facing here? And how can I get past that? And that's where like the growth happens when you're like, all right, all I'm doing is holding myself back. Like just move forward. And I think also with the fear of failure, the fear of like embarrassment that stopped a lot of people, especially from pursuing entrepreneurship because you're putting yourself out there. It's like such a vulnerable place to be, especially you as a podcast host, like you are putting yourself out there every single time you record one of these things. That's such a vulnerable place to like put yourself and opens yourself up to criticism. And I think I can't remember who told me this, like some mentor was like, think about what the worst possible scenario could be when you're scared and when you're like scared to do something, think about like, what is the worst thing that could happen? And visualizing that sometimes can like help you just be like, oh, it's not that bad. And for me, with Carrie, it was like the worst possible thing that could happen is I lose $12,000, but you know what? That's way cheaper than an MBA. And like, I'm going to learn a lot. And if it doesn't work out, I'll be really marketable because I just tried and built a business. And if I failed, I'm sure I'd have learnings that I could go take elsewhere. So that also helps is like just visualizing like what is absolute worst case scenario. And most of the time it's like not that bad. I was recently interviewing one of my dear friends who manages big creators, YouTubers, and she was talking about this internal scorecard for content. And I feel like that's true for anything, right? Like what's your internal scorecard? Like you you did the thing. You went for it. You went all in. I have no doubt that Carrie is going to do amazingly well and continue to do amazingly well. But at the same time, regardless of what happens, you went for it. And you can like go to sleep at the end of the day knowing I went for it. I committed to myself, you know? Yeah. My husband always says you're playing with house money. He says that a lot where he's like, you've already won. Same goes for you. Um, And I think same goes for any entrepreneur that's like successfully started something because most people don't start. Like so many people have the idea and don't actually start. So just by like starting just in that, like you've already won, you already have this amazing experience and learning experience that you can go take anywhere you want. And so after that, like you're kind of playing with house money, like you can 
succeed, you can fail. Of course, like you said, it does come with some privilege that we're like, oh, we could just fail and we'll do something else. But I think there's so many like learnings that come out of starting a business or starting something that are really marketable. So that worst case scenario for founders is actually like a lot less bad than maybe you convince yourself it is. Completely. And every failure I've had so far has led me to the next thing and has built on each other. And it's been this very cumulative journey. And mm-hmm. I like I could not be here without the thing that I did two or three things ago. You know what I mean? Like they all led into each other. So we can't really predict how they will serve us. We can't really predict outcomes. I want to talk about the fear of embarrassment and fear of being cringe because I this topic fascinates me. First of all, because I remember feeling it so viscerally when I was creating TikTok content. But also I had become a little bit shameless at that point because I had created other content where it was it's a whole other story, but like I did this hundred days of YouTube challenge. I got a kidney infection, ended up in the hospital, kept making my videos like a lunatic, like with my hospital kidney. In the hospital. <laughs> wow, you have to link me to one of those. That's really funny. I think That's I like archived it, but I'll send it to you. It's so it's so embarrassing. But after that, I was like, well, now I'm not embarrassed by anything because that is truly as shameless as it gets. And so, but still, like I was on TikTok and I was, I didn't go into it thinking I'm gonna post about business. I just started doing trends and I was like, oh, this is a little awkward. It's fun, but it's weird and whatever. Mm-hmm. And I went for it and obviously it's worked out for me. And then I started kind of just posting about it online saying like, don't be afraid to be cringe. And it shocked me how many people resonated with that, how it struck a chord. I'm so fascinated by that because recently I also saw this tweet where somebody said, I used to be afraid of looking like I was making a lot of effort, but now I'm over it. And I was like, that's so sad. That's like (laughs) such a tragic like limitation. Yeah. I personally think there's so much to be proud of in making an effort, even if you fail because you you are going for it. But I do think that a lot of people feel that way where they're like, oh my gosh, this is so vulnerable. And uh, again, like, in like some ways, oh no, what are my friends and family going to think? Because the side of me, like, are they, I know. that was my thing. For a that long was time. mine too. I was like, what are my friends from like college going to think? From high school? Yeah. My friends from college, my family members would be like, what is Sarah doing? <laughs> That's <laughs> that was hard. And if, like, where do you think that comes from? Because ultimately it's such a funny thing that we place so much weight on that because it's a choice between like doing this thing that we really want to do and the optics of how we appear to other people. And rationally, you would think that they would be very disproportionate, but it really is a a big thing for all of us. It's very human. Oh my God. I I cannot relate to that more. Like when I first started going on QVC, talk about cringe. I'm like going on in this like bright glitzy outfit I'm like selling my hell out of my products and you know I get 10 minutes on air so I make the most of those 10 minutes I am so cringe like I can't even rewatch it sometimes because I'm just like oh my god I'm so annoying if you send me the QVC video link I'll send you the hospital gown YouTube link it's it's cringe I'm actually going on next weekend I'll send you the the airtime um, I don't think of that as cringe I think of that as such a win but it's interesting how we have these narratives but that's the point it's you that feels that way like yeah. I felt so super cringe I've, I've totally leaned into it and I have zero shame now yeah. um, and that helps me with like TikTok and everything I'm just like I don't care like no one's paying attention to me like no one actually really cares that's like a 
good piece of advice. Like no one's actually paying attention that much. Everyone's focused on themselves. Don't let that stop you from creating and doing what you want and putting yourself out there. But it's, it's funny you say that because I was just having a conversation on Twitter with someone that just recently grew her following on Instagram and TikTok. And she was like, I want to start pushing my products more, but I don't want to, I don't want to turn people off by being too salesy. And I was like, you are thinking about this completely wrong. Like you created a product, you are passionate about it. You are knowledgeable in the product. You truly created something that people want and that people need. What, like that is such a limiting belief. I think that a lot of people have, they're like, oh, I shouldn't talk about this because like people are going to get annoyed that I'm being salesy. And that's something I've learned from QVC. It's like, no, people love hearing from passionate people. Like when you talk about your product with passion, like I go on QVC and I'm fired up and I love talking about my products because I believe in them and I created them and I have so much passion for them. And that comes through and that's like magnetic and people love that and they respond to that. That is what people respond to on social media, on YouTube is like, passion and energy, people just want that. They are drawn to that, even if they're not the end consumer for the product. I had like 75-year-old men, grandpas at home watching Shark Tank buying our products because they were just like, you were so passionate. Like I just wanted to buy what you were selling. So it's just a it's a really good lesson for creators, for entrepreneurs. It's like let your passion shine through because that is what people people crave that. It doesn't matter what you're talking about. Just talk about what you're passionate about because that's what's going to do well. Screw the algorithms and the planning. Like just talk about what you're really, really fired up about. You're just speaking to my soul because this is literally what I tell people when they're like, I want to get started on TikTok. I want to become a creator. Like what do I do? How do I do this? And what's the strategy? And what, what do I do with hashtags? And I'm like, look, there's an 80-20 here. Find something you're passionate about. Talk about it. Talk about it in the way that you want. Like, yes, you have to care about the algorithm a little bit, but above all, yes, because your enthusiasm is magnetic and that is what people respond to. That increases watch time. That actually ends up working the algorithm in far better ways than you could have done trying to map out this whole strategy by copying these three other creators. And that's what it's about. We just want to feel connected and we want to feel that excitement and it doesn't really matter what you're talking about. It's so true. And like with TikTok, it's like, you're always going to find someone you're, you're going to find your niche, like yeah. no matter what you're talking about. So just like talk about what you're passionate about. Yeah. We're on the same wavelength here. What do you think about the state of, I don't want to just make it about female founders, but I kind of just want to make it about female founders, the state of female founders being the faces of their brands, because I feel that it's often done out of necessity. Like you said, if you don't have a big marketing budget, what are you going to do? Right. And I don't necessarily think it's a risk for everyone, but sometimes it does create additional scrutiny. And yeah, I was going to say it exposes you. Yes, it exposes you and you are held to different standards. And sometimes if you create this sort of brand story around yourself as the founder around the brand that you are a mission-driven brand or that you have these values of inclusivity and such, you get held to such insane standards that no, literally no business would be able to uphold. Mm-hmm. Like I personally think that a lot of these kind of hit pieces that have come about female founders, I, that's a whole other soapbox, like they target these female founders for things that if you were to look under the hood of any business in Silicon Valley, like any startup, you would find way worse things. So I know. I know. Can you come onto the soapbox with me and tell me what I you mean, think? Away luggage, like that's the biggest example to me of like they were so unfairly like the teardown of that business was like so unjustified to me. Mm-hmm. And it's like if you had just replaced Steph Corey's name with like 
Stefan Corey, it would not be an issue. They would be like, wow, he's being a really great firm leader. Um, but because it's a female, it's like such a different standard. And I hate that so much. And I'm so frustrated by the double standard and the standards women are held to. And it's not even, you know, of course, being the outward facing founder exposes yourself more. But even if you're not, like you're still, you still have like a target on your back. Yeah, Corey was not that public. Yeah, she wasn't that public. So I think it's just being a female founder. I hate it. I hate that it's this way. I hate how few venture-backed female-founded businesses there are. We have made zero progress, literally going in the wrong opposite direction. Now we're less than 2% of venture-funded companies in 2022 being female-founded. It's really frustrating. Um, And I, I don't know what the solution is. The only solution I can think of is like, keep killing it, prove them wrong, prove that women can run profitable, valuable businesses. But I I hate seeing all these like tear down pieces on women. And it's so unfair and unjustified. Even like, I think you posted about Emily Weiss, Glossier, like when she stepped down and they hired a new CEO, even just the language that was used in those headlines was like, it was a failure. And in reality, it was, it was not a failure. She was handing over the torch to another CEO that happens all the time when someone is 10 years into building their business and wants to move on. Like it's, I'm on this soapbox with you, but I don't have a solution. And that's frustrating. I don't either. It's just something I think about a lot. It's, it's, And when you think about, like, exactly like you said, the stats around how few women are venture backed, and then the few that are have to deal with this additional scrutiny and not be canceled for, in some cases, valid things, in other cases, completely trivial things that would not be something that people look twice at if it were whoever else, right? Like, it would work in the favor. I mean, whatever, SBF and like all these stories. Anyway. I know with SBF and like the whole FTX thing, I'm like, that. That would have never happened to a woman because no woman would ever even be allowed to have like that yeah, level that of like lack of governance like with their, with their business. Like yeah. that just would never happen with a female founded business. So that in itself fills me with rage. And then the way that like he's been treated in the aftermath of people on Twitter like defending him and, oh, he didn't know any better. Like it's, he's young. It's such a... A double standard. And even the discourse around, oh, he would play League of Legends while he was pitching Sequoia and he slept on a beanbag and didn't shower or whatever the hell they were saying. Imagine investors having a female founder exhibit those traits. They would not approach her with a 10-foot pole. They'd be like, you're exactly. a mess. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's, I hate it. Well, thank you and your TikTok. Like, I feel like you really bring a lot of, draw a lot of light to that. And for better or worse, I, I do think that helps. I always call it out on Twitter. <laughs> that's my that's my soapbox. And I hope that there is like meaningful change and at least just a level playing field totally. and equal opportunity. Well, I know we could talk about probably a lot of this ad nauseum mm-hmm. and there are a million questions I would want to ask you, but I want to respect your time. And I want to say thank you so much for joining. This was a very cathartic conversation. It was very informative. It was inspiring. And it was just really beautiful to have you. Thank you so much. Like I could talk for another hour with you, but (laughs) we'll save it for next time. We'll save it for TikTok. Thank you so much for having me. Of course.